Well, good morning, everyone. I'm, uh, that was good. I like that. Uh, I'm Tim Shorey, and uh, I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Risen Hope, and am also privileged to serve through the ministry of God's Word this morning. So I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and as you're turning there, a reminder that we are in a series of messages through the book of Ephesians, uh, and we are tying to that message our Explore membership course. Uh, so if you are here and are not a member of Covenant Fellowship slash Risen Hope and are interested in finding out more about uh, this church and becoming a part of it, there's a couple things you need to do. One is be here as often as you can over the next eight or ten weeks for our Sunday worship to, to hear the messages. We are not having a separate class, so if you've looked at the material and see an 8.30 Sunday morning class, ignore that. Uh, don't show up at 8.30. Uh, we won't be here. Uh, so it is during the worship time that we're having the meetings. If you haven't signed up, haven't got the books yet, uh, please see me at the end. I'll be in the back there by the table uh, and make sure you get the book because there, are, there is some reading to go along uh, with the uh, messages that we are giving. So let's turn to God's Word, Ephesians 2, and hear God's Word beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, all races, all ethnicities, might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, come and teach us and show us the wonder of what it means to be in Christ in the church. Father, great honor, great privilege, great blessing 
is to be found in the truths to be heard this morning. Come and bless us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was back in the mid-80s that a study of American spirituality was done. And a nurse by the name of Sheila Larson was interviewed and quoted. And this is what she said. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. It's just trying to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. Sheilaism. Sheilaism was alive and well 30 years ago. Sheilaism is with us with a vengeance today. It is a dominant spirituality of our times. It's, and it's not just out there in the world. I fear that it is creeping into and affecting and influencing members of the body of Christ. Those who profess faith in Jesus as their God and as their Savior. There may be many reasons why Sheilaism, a kind of anti-church Sheilaism, is popular even among Christians today. Maybe, maybe it's because Christians simply don't know what the Bible teaches about the church. Maybe it's because believers have had bad experiences with church, which one of us hasn't. Maybe it's because believers are committed to not getting burnt again. Maybe it's because the relativistic, anything-goes spirit of our age, where it's listening to my own little voice that determines my lifestyle, that, that has, has, has found its way into our thinking at times. Maybe it's because we're Americans. And Americans pride themselves in glory and their rugged individualism and in their independence. But one reason or another, the fact of the matter is that Sheilaism is, is common, it is prevalent, it is infecting the lives of many. And I think we're going to see this morning that Sheilaism and biblical faith are contradictory. They're incompatible, you can't put them together. The Christian life rightly lived and under, understood and lived is in direct contradiction to Sheilaism. They don't mix. We've said we're in a series of messages, actually through the whole book of Ephesians, the, the series is entitled brilliantly, In. In. Why? Because the book of Ephesians is all about what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be a believer in union with Christ. In relationship with Christ. So that all that He is and all that He has come to us by virtue of the fact that by faith we are in Him. But within that big series in Ephesians, we're now doing a series within the series, which we're calling In Christ in the Church. Because from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to the first couple of verses of chapter 5, Paul teaches us about what it means to be in relationship with Christ 
and in relationship to the body of Christ, to the church, to the people of God. We saw last week in our introductory message to this series, within the series, Jesus, remember this, Jesus reconciles us to God, bridges the racial divide, and compels us to live a reconciled life. This is a wonderful blessing of the cross. It reconciles us to God. It bridges the racial divide. And it compels us to live a reconciled life. Now today, what I want us to see, what we need to see, is that Paul takes this a step further. To indicate to us that that there are implications of this truth. that, That Jesus has reconciled us to God and to each other. And we can summarize those implications with with this statement. Every believer, every believer in Jesus is called by God not only to be in Christ, but to be in a church and to share in the biblically defined life and mission of that church. Let me repeat that for those taking notes. Every believer is called by God Not only to be in Christ, but to be in a church. And to share in the biblically defined life and mission of that church. Let me me try to show you that from the text this morning. Again, last week we saw that the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ reconciles us to God. And it bridges the the racial divide. Today we need to see that God doesn't want that, folks, to be something that is just theoretical. That's not just abstract. That's not just a, wow, that's a nice idea. Rather, it's meant to be something that is real. It looks like something. It lives like something. It actually works its way out in real life, in active community, in congregational worship, in in an organized kind of way, in a shared mission kind of way. God's people who have been reconciled through the cross now actually have to live together and get it done for the glory of God in the life of the church. Notice how the text develops. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Friends, this is great news for every single human being individually. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what's going on, You, if you believe in Jesus, have access to God. You have access to God. All of us equally. All of us gloriously. Access to God. Every single individual believer. Access. God is our Father. And we can approach Him through Jesus, His Son, by the help and power and enablement of His Holy Spirit. This is the privilege of every believer. But notice, notice it now. In verses 19 through 22, it doesn't doesn't stop there with great news for every single one of us individually. So then, verse 19, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God. Notice what, notice what Paul does here. Wonderful privilege for every individual believer. Access to God. But God has given that to each of us individually so that we can become, he says, citizens of the same nation. And we can become members of the same household, the same family. So that we can become stones in the same building. We can become living organic materials that are forming together and growing together into the same temple or dwelling place of God. Each of these references is to the church. And they're all saying to us that Jesus came not just to save individuals, he came to save the church. Jesus came not just to love and nourish and cherish me. I'm glad he did. But he didn't come just to love and cherish and nourish me. Chapter 5 says he came to love and give himself for and nourish and cherish the church. I am not merely in Christ. I am in Christ in the church. I am not merely a part of God's plan of salvation. I am a part of God's community, God's church, that is a part of God's plan of salvation. We're in it together. And that needs to look like something. So, Paul says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. What does that mean? Well, when you came to faith in Christ, you joined ranks with all of God's people as citizens in God's nation. Subjects to His crown. A people that are destined to live in His country. Teaches us that we're not individual believers just kind of trotting along on planet earth in isolation, but we are one holy nation. All our ethnicities, all our shades of color and culture, one nation. One nation with the same mission in this world, with the same ultimate allegiance to one king, the same ultimate loyalty to one homeland. We are citizens. And then in verse 19 says you are members of his household. That means we all have equal status in the family of God. We're all sons and daughters. God is the father of us all. Jesus is the older brother of us all. We are brothers. We are sisters. And have family fellowship and family care with a heavenly father who knows and loves us all equally. Verses 19 through 21 Paul says we are living stones in a building. This is, I call this metaphor mayhem here. Uh, Paul, Paul is just going crazy with the metaphors, with the figures of speech. Throwing them all together. And there's more than mixed metaphors. This is 
mayhem metaphors. They're, they're everywhere. So he talks about us being a nation. He talks about us being a family. He talks about us being a household. Now he talks about us being a building, a structure that is being put together and joined together. And then he says in verse 21 that it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That word growing is, is actually an organic word. It talks about seeds that have that are growing. It's talking about uh, plants that are growing. It's talking about babies. It's how it's used in the Bible. So we are this building that's growing. We're, we're a living building. A living building, as Peter puts it. You yourselves are living stones being built as a spiritual house to the Lord. First Peter 2.15. This building, Paul says, it's, it's being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Christ Jesus himself being the anchor and the center and the, the, the very uh, foundation of this building. But here's the thing to notice, folks. It's one building. Many stones, but one building. We're meant to be a part of the building. Not living in isolation. God didn't mean for us to be individual stones just kind of sitting out there in the middle of the place. No, we're meant to be gathered together and built together into a structure, into a building. And then we are told what that building is in verses 21 and 22. It's a temple. It's the dwelling place of God. I love the the theme of temple and dwelling place in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where, uh, was it uh, Jacob, Jacob's ladder? And I think that's the place, I uh, just thought of this this morning, didn't have time to check it, correct me if I'm wrong, feel free to do that afterwards. But isn't that where Jacob says this is Bethel, it's the house of God? It's the house of God. This is a place where God, God dwells. This is a place where God is. And then you have the, then you have the tabernacle, right? And in the tabernacle, there's, there is the holy of holies. It's the, it's the place in the center of all of Israel. There's this little tent. And in the tent, there are two rooms. And the smaller room is the holy of holies. And it's there where the Ark of the Covenant is and where the presence of God is found. And then there's the temple, which is just a, a bigger, more glorious expression of the tabernacle where Solomon built this magnificent place. But what was so special about the place, not the gold, not the structure, it was where God was. It was where God was. And then Hebrews tells us that heaven is the ultimate temple. It's the ultimate house of God. It's the ultimate holy of holies. Now between... Solomon and heaven is the church here on earth. We are the temple of God. Each of us individually, yes, but all of us together form the house of God. We form a holy temple. We are a place right here, right now. As I speak, God is here. God is here. We have sung to Him and He has heard. We have prayed to Him, and He has heard. We have read His Word, and He has smiled. We have shared communion, 
and he has been with us. We now hear his word preached. And though I'm a fallible man, somehow or other his wonderful truth comes through. And we hear it and God speaks. And his spirit comes and dwells in each one of us individually, dwells among us collectively. And God does what God does. And ultimately, Sunday mornings is not so much about how we serve each other or what we say to each other. We have an audience of one. There's one in whose presence we come. We are the house of God. And there are thousands of such houses. Everywhere the gospel is preached, Jesus is faithfully loved and proclaimed every church upstairs, the other side of the building, house of God, Beulah Tabernacle, down the road, crossroad, house of God. Manoa Community Church, gospel preached there, house of God. Bethany Church in Habertown, house of God. Covenant Fellowship, house of God. Christ Community Church, South Philly and Grace City Church in Northeast Philly, House of God, wherever, wherever, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever God's people come together as one body, there God is. Friends, is it not clear from this text that the Lord Jesus intends for us Not to live out our faith in isolation. Not to be individuals alone. No Sheilaism allowed among believers. It's not just me having my own personal Savior. I'm glad I have my own personal Savior. But it's not just about me having my own personal Savior. It is about us, if you will, having our own congregational Savior. He is the Savior of all who believe. And as they gather together, that collective, congregational, family, temple experience is enjoyed. So what does that look like? So what does that look like? What are we to do with this? Every believer is called by God not only to be in Christ, but to be in a church and to share in the biblically defined life and mission of that church. So what is church life? What is it biblically defined? What I'd I'd like to do is just take a few minutes in the time that remains to spell out for us a bit of what God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ want this community life to look like. There there are five characteristics from the text, and I'll give them to you as quickly as I can. Characteristic number one of this community life is it is an initiated life. Look down at chapter 4 and verse 5. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one what? Baptism. That's a a reference to the New Testament practice of immersing 
or dipping believers into water as an expression, a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's assumption here is that there is one baptism that has been shared by all believers. In other words, another way of saying that is he is assuming that all believers have been baptized. And this, this reflects the, the teaching and the commandment of our Lord himself. You know the text, right? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. New disciples, go and make disciples. Then what do you do? Baptize them. And then teach them. And the New Testament just applied that in the context of the church. So make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then include them in the life of the church so that they can be taught everything that Christ has commanded us. Baptism is a ceremony that Jesus himself ordained and, is inst- and instituted, which by the way, given that Jesus ordained it and instituted it, probably suggests to us that we ought to take it as somewhat important. This is something we ought to do. It is the ceremony by which a, a person goes public in terms of their faith. It is how they are initiated into the faith and makes a declaration that they are in the faith. They are no longer unbelievers, but believers. They are no longer living for themselves. That life has been buried, and they are now living in and for Christ, in the name and for the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism, the water of baptism, doesn't wash away your sins. Jesus washes away your sins. Jesus saves you. You are saved through repentance and faith in Christ alone. But in the New Testament, if you are truly repenting and believing in Christ, one of the first things you're going to do is get baptized. So that the world will know outwardly, symbolically, ceremonially, what has gone on inwardly, spiritually in your heart. And Paul assumes that those who are reading his letter, they've been baptized. They've been baptized. That's why, with due respect to those that differ on this, and we have dear brothers and sisters who do differ with us on this, but... With due respect to them, we, we believe in believers' baptism. We believe that baptism is for those who have come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ to declare their faith. And we also believe that baptism is important in leading into the church. It's, it's, it's the initiation into the body of Christ. Acts chapter 2, those who received his word were baptized And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church. And the text goes on to describe what the life of that church was. So they believed, they were baptized, they were added to the church. Baptism not only symbolizes and declares your allegiance to Christ, it also expresses in an initiation kind of way your attachment to the church to the people of God. If you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, we encourage you, we invite you, we urge you 
to take seriously this command from the Lord. To be baptized, to declare your faith, to be initiated into the life of the church. God willing, we are planning our first Risen Hope baptism uh, for April the 3rd. And if you are interested, please let us know. Because we want to talk with you and welcome you into that experience. Secondly, New Testament life is not only an initiated life, it is a committed life. And by the way, I'm talking fast and I'm saying a lot because I have a lot to say. So you got to just kind of listen fast here this morning, trying to get you out of here before three o'clock this afternoon, <laughs> all right? So community life is secondly a committed life. It is a committed life. All the metaphors here say that, right? Citizens of a nation, they're committed, they're loyal, they're supportive, they're giving, they serve to advance the, the cause and the territory of that nation and the cause of the gospel. We are the household of God. A healthy family is marked by mutual care and provision and faithfulness and love and accountability. We are joined and built and held together. That's language of tight, firm, secure nearness and commitment. So how does that work out in the New Testament? What does this look like? Well, it looked like all the believers in the New Testament came to faith in Christ, got baptized, became part of a local church. They said, I've got I to be a part of what God is doing. I've got to be committed to what God is doing. Understand, in one sense, there is only one church, right? Every believer from all time, from every place, everyone who has ever named the name of Christ in sincerity and truth as their Savior and Lord is all part of the one church. But in the New Testament, that one church finds expression in many churches, local churches, individual churches. That's why you have references to the churches in Galatia or the churches in Antioch or the churches in Thessalonica. One church that manifests in the form of many churches. I, I liken it to the army. Think, think about the army. There is one army, but many camps, many bases, many battalions. Each camp, each base has its own leaders, has its own authorities, has its own structures. But it's all one army. It's all one army. All committed to the same end, all committed to the same commander-in-chief but manifested in different places for strategic mission, in the case of the church, for mission, for pastoral and community life. Jesus has designed that his church be made up of many churches, each with its own leaders and strategies and mission, and that each believer be a part of one of those churches. Scripture is clear that believers are to join the church. They are to be a part of a church. You say, why membership? Because again, we understand that there are dear brothers and sisters in the Lord who differ with us on this and, and don't believe in church membership. We, we believe in church membership because we believe the Bible teaches church membership and that every believer in the New Testament was a part of a church in a meaningful, committed, enduring, over the long haul kind of way. 
But there's a practical reason for this, friends, and that is that we who are your pastors, if I can put it in these terms, we need to know who our sheep are. We need to know who our flock is. You know, we need to know those that have committed themselves to our care. We can only know that if there's some kind of membership and some kind of role and some kind of list. All right, who, you understand there's a lot of Christians around. I'm not responsible for every Christian on the planet. <laughs> All right? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. But I am responsible for those that God has entrusted to me. And I can only know the ones who are entrusted to me if they let me know. Which is what membership is about. The scriptures talk in Acts 20, Paul tells the Ephesian pastors, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There is a specific flock in which the Spirit of God had made them overseers. They were not responsible for the flocks in Jerusalem. Only the one in Antioch or in Ephesus. 1 Peter 5, Peter says to pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That means the flocks of God that are in Timbuktu somewhere, they're not among me, or I'm not among them. There is a flock that I'm to shepherd, that Andy is to shepherd, that others are being raised up, will shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You need to know, friends, that your pastors live with a sober, humbling, sometimes terrifying awareness that there has been a flock entrusted to us. That there have been people, precious ones for whom Christ died, that have been entrusted to our care, for whom we will one day give an account. But we need to know who they are. We need to know who they are. And that is why we encourage and exhort those who are believers in Christ to make sure that they are a part, a formal, recognized, official part of a church somewhere. doesn't have to be this one. And we mean that. I can recommend other wonderful churches in the area. But you need to be a part of something. And you need them to let the pastors know you're a committed member. Whatever their process of membership is, you need to submit to it. You need to get into it so that they can know that they are responsible for you. Verse 13, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. And if you're one who has an allergy to membership roles and lists and those kinds of things, can I remind you there's a long biblical history of membership roles. We have, what's the plural for census? I was thinking, we have censuses in the Old Testament where the people of God were numbered. We have genealogies. 
in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were added, 5,000 added a little bit later. They kept records, they kept numbers, and there is the Lamb's book of life in which all of the names of all of the people of God are listed. Friends, if you are not a member of a church, we urge you on the basis of God's word, find a church and commit. Find one church, be a part of it over the long haul for the glory of God and for the good of that local church and its mission. The community life, and I have to hurry here, community life is, first of all, an initiated life. Then it is a committed life. Third, it is a gathered life. It is a gathered life. It is, it is a life together as God's people. In chapter 4, we're told that pastors and teachers are called to teach and train believers. Well, I'm here to tell you, folks, we can't teach and train if you're not here. We have to gather. In chapter 5, we're told to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. little hard to do if we're not in the same place. The, the responsibility to gather in, in the book of Acts, the early believers gathered frequently and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers. First and Second Timothy and Titus tell us how to behave and what to do when we are gathered. First Corinthians talks about how there are times when the whole church comes together for communion. And you're probably familiar with Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near if if you find in your own heart whether you're a member or not of risen hope if you find that gathering is maybe losing a little appeal or other things just seem to bump it and get in the way of it, can I, can I encourage you to look again at Hebrews 10? Coming together, making gathering a priority is something apparently that has greater and greater urgency the closer we get to that day. Because it's the closer we get to that day when Jesus comes back, I believe the harder and more difficult life will be in this world. And we're going to need each other. We're going to need each other. And the writer of Hebrews says, all the more as you see that day approaching, do not neglect meeting together for fellowship, for worship, for community life. Fourth, New Testament community life is a Godward life. And we'll talk more about this in a later message, but... Our life together, it's not about Tim Shorey, it's not about Andy Farmer, it's not about having a nice social club, this is about God. It's not a cliche, that's what it's about. Through one spirit, through Christ, we have access to the Father. 
to the Father. And what are we? We are a holy temple. A temple is where worship happens. A temple is where the presence of God is felt and known. Local church gatherings are God events. And you and I can come together expecting week after week after week, despite all our deficiencies and all our weaknesses and all our imperfections and all our flaws and all our sins. We can expect that as we come into this place, what somebody called recently their favorite basement. (laughs) We We can come into this place and know that God will transform the basement into a temple. And God will be worshipped and God will be seen and God will be heard and God will be known and God will be encountered in this place. And finally, it is, I can't remember all my points, an initiated life, a committed life, a gathered life, a Godward life, and finally, it is an organized life. It is an organized life. A lot of people don't like the word organized or organization connected to the church. Don't like organized religion. Well, uh, if there is no organization, then church doesn't happen. Let's just say, let's all just by some kind of osmosis figure out when we're going to worship. And just as the Spirit moves you, show up. Well, wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. We've got to figure out what time we're going to worship. Which, by the way, is 9.45 for those of you arriving around 10.15. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't resist that. I I just had to say it. We get it. Life is hard. Uh, There's a lot of stairs there getting down. Uh, uh, uh. We do encourage you to be here on time because that way you get the full benefit of being the temple, being the house of God, and enjoying the people of God. Uh, But there needs to be a time, right? There needs to be a time. There needs to be leaders. There needs to be structure. There needs to be a plan. And here in Risen Hope, Uh, Much like our Sending Church Covenant Fellowship. You know, we try to keep the plan. We try to keep the structure as simple as possible. We have our Sunday worship event. 9.45, we just come to worship through song and reading and prayer and preaching and hearing. That's, in one sense, that's the foundation of everything else. Without what goes on here on Sunday mornings, it all just kind of unravels. This is where we come together. We come together. But then we have our community groups. Those are smaller groups that meet in different homes on either Tuesday or Thursday evenings. And these are places for fellowship, for prayer, for encouragement, for exhortation, finding out how each other is doing and strengthening each other in faith. It's also a place where unbelievers can be welcomed and they can see how we love one another and by seeing how we love one another, want to be a part of what we have community groups. We have ministry teams, different ministries in the church that we invite people to be a part of. We have 
various other opportunities for studies, women's studies, men's studies, youth ministry, singles care, all of those, many of those in connection with our Sending Church Covenant Fellowship. But if you wanted just a snapshot of what organized life looks like in this church, it is that there are elders who oversee uh, someday, hopefully not too long from now, there will be deacons and deaconesses who serve in different ways. Uh, but there is Sunday morning worship, the Sunday morning event, there is community groups and fellowship, and there are ministry teams that you can serve on. And that's our way. There are many ways to do church. That's our way. That's how we're aiming at it. And with the help and grace of God, we hope to do it well so that many can be blessed. If you're not a member here, we would love to have you join. If this isn't the place for you, and it may not be, it's great having you here now, uh, but we encourage you to find a place that fits who you are and the direction your life is going in and become a part of that. Wherever you land, God bless you. And whatever you do, don't, don't wait around looking for the perfect, perfect church. Because as has been said ad nauseum, as soon as you join it, it ceases to be perfect. Right? Um, if you've had bad experiences in the church and with the church, can I call you to faith? Can I, can I call you, first of all, to conviction? Every believer is called by God to be in Christ and in a church. Conviction of conscience. This is not an option. This is what he calls us to. And then can I call you to faith? That the God who commands gives grace to obey the command. The God who calls us is faithful to enable us. And can I call you to vision that being a part of something bigger than yourself is where the joy is. It's where the sense of purpose is. It's where the sense of mission is. It's, it's where uh, so much adventure is and yet so much trial. For you know what? Look around. These people are going to hurt your feelings sometimes. Look here, I'm going to blow it. There's going to be, sooner or later, every one of you is going to be mad at me. Count on it. It's going to happen. I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to fail to say something, fail to do something. And you're going to be offended, and rightly so. We're all going to fail each other. But it is still the dearest place on earth. There is still no place on earth more wonderful wonderful, and beautiful, and glorious than the church. And I would rather be here, a doorkeeper in the house of God for one day than 10,000 days and years on the outside because Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and nourishes and strengthens her. And so, brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus, not part of a church, you're welcome. But find something. and Love the church just like Christ loves the church.
Let's pray. Oh Lord, may these things not fall on our ears as heavy burdens and obligations and legalism and law. May they fall on our ears as privilege and joy and vision and and hope and purpose and meaning and significance. You love each of us individually. But you love us into the church. To be members of the body. Brothers and sisters in your family. Citizens in your nation. Soldiers in your army. Lights in this world. Father, grant that we will embrace, in faith, embrace these things for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. As we close, I did go a little bit over, please forgive me. Uh, uh, as we close, I do remind you first of all, there is a guest reception up the stairs to the right, take a left. Uh, and also, I will be in the back if you are interested in joining or finding out more, getting the reading material, or if you have any questions, please feel free to, to see me back there. God bless you all, God be with you all, and God keep you safe.